You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Zeke Fox, who is an investigative reporter at Bloomberg and the author of this book called Number Go Up Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. Welcome, Zeke. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Well, I've been teaching a course on behavioral finance for over 20 years. <laughs> and so I spent a lot of time talking about bubbles, starting with the tulip bubble, of course, and working my way through to the bicycle bubble and the dot-com bubble. And you said, I think in the beginning of this book, that this is probably the, the biggest bubble in history or the biggest mania in, in history. And, and I remember when I started teaching a course on crypto back in 2017 at Berkeley, the amount of enthusiasm and hype around crypto was just off the charts. I mean, every single student, we had probably, I don't know, 30 students applying for every slot in that class. So there was enormous amount of excitement, but I think they were a little bit disappointed when in the class I spent a lot of time trying to show that while everyone thinks that things are completely new, right? It's not always all that new. And, and I think your book really highlights that because you have a background in investigating frauds. So you apply your insights around those previous frauds to this group of actors in the crypto space. And I think probably the irony of your book is that you started by investigating the one company that has turned out probably to be the most stable and to have the least amount of obvious fraudulent dirt around it. So there's a lot, I find this to be fascinating. And I, and I guess the question is, if you were trying to understand this phenomenon over the last couple of years, would you spend more time learning the tech, the business, the law or the psychology? Ooh, it's a good question. I, I think that the tech can be a little bit of a red herring because the blockchain technology is pretty fascinating and you can come up with all sorts of cool stuff that one might be able to do with it. And what I did in trying to, I was trying to answer the question, why are all of these coins going up and up and up? This, if we roll it back like a couple of years, to 2021, it just seemed like everybody I knew was telling me they'd invested in some coin and were making great money. I mean, I knew a guy who had refinanced his mortgage and was earning these big returns from DeFi. And I had a friend who was really into Dogecoin who was pushing it on me. And I just, I wanted to know what was behind all of this. And I think that yeah, the technology was not the the way to answer it. I try in the book to explain as little as is necessary about how blockchain works and what Bitcoin is. Because I think, yeah, the key to it is psychology. And the title, Number Go Up, comes from this saying that I've heard at my first crypto conference in 2021. I flew down to Miami I thought I would hear more about technology. I thought I'd see bankers or fintech entrepreneurs who had ideas about 
how they're going to disrupt the financial system with this new technology and replace intermediaries, make global transfers faster and cheaper. And instead, I heard this guy on stage saying, our technology is called number go up. And number go up technology means the price goes up and that makes people excited and they buy more and the price goes up more and then more people get excited and pretty soon Bitcoin's going to be at a million. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I was like, is that, is that what it's really all about? And I went into this as a skeptic of crypto, but I think I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not someone who assumes the worst. And so everyone I met, I would think, well, they seem pretty smart. What do I know? They must have something going on that's not just betting on all the numbers going up forever. And then again and again, I learned that no, in fact, they were just betting on the numbers going up and more and more people piling in. And yeah, the people in crypto who during this last boom were hailed as geniuses and visionaries, the people who claim to have these great trading strategies or these amazing ways to generate yield or these trading venues, these exchanges that clipped profits easily. It turned out nearly all of them had given into the temptation to just bet on prices going to the moon. And it turns out this number go up technology is pretty powerful. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, as, as long as it lasts. When people are making investments, I mean, everyone knows that the price of an asset is in part due to fundamentals and is in part due to kind of psychology, right? And when we look at these big bubbles, whether it's the dot-com bubble or the, the real estate bubble or even the, the tulip bubble, right? I mean, most of them, there is something there, okay? So back in the late 90s, people could see, wow, look, I can buy stuff on Amazon that I couldn't do before, right? And when we think about the real estate bubble, it's like, well, oh, look, I can buy real estate. There's housing there. I mean, the ratio of fundamental value to psychology seems to be lower in this bubble than pretty much any previous bubble. I mean, it seems to be almost entirely built around momentum and psychology, right? I mean, can you compare it to these other bubbles? Yeah, sometimes it's very explicit. Like something like Dogecoin, no claims are made that Dogecoin will ever do anything. It's just like, this is a pretty fun bubble. How about we all buy it and see how big it gets? And hopefully I can be the one to get out before it pops. And I agree with you. I, I would meet with a lot of crypto people. And when I would point out some of the shortcomings, they often would compare it to the early days of the consumer internet and the dot-com bubble. And a lot of these people are younger than me. I'm 39. I would say, you know what? I'm actually old enough that I remember those years. And I loved eBay. I loved GeoCities. I was all over the early internet. It was great. And so were all my friends. Everyone liked using the early internet. And not just for solely... I mean, in crypto, the crypto guys, they do use crypto, but only to buy it. It's not serving any purpose other than just buying it, trading it, doing things within this crypto world. Whereas with the internet, it was clearly, it was a lot of fun and it was affecting all, a lot of parts of real life. So yes, like that, the prices in the internet bubble got way ahead of what could be justified by how much money these companies were making. But to me, there was never any doubt that the internet was a powerful 
innovation that was going to change our lives. I mean, I can remember, and my, I feel like my kids will never believe this, but there was a time when there was a song by a band that me and my sister loved it. It was called, a band called Letters to Cleo, and they spoke very fast, and we didn't know what they were saying. And there was literally no way to find out. Like, we couldn't, we, we could not find, we, we were writing letters to the band. We called the local radio station. Then, like, the internet came and we looked up the lyrics. It was a miracle. The value of the internet was always clear to me. I think the, the crypto guys like to make that as, like, an easy comparison to try to justify the crypto bubble. I mean, and I think what's amazing right now is that when my book was published a few months ago, it was, since then, prices have soared. Prices of all sorts of cryptocurrencies are way up. And there's really no fundamental explanation for it. The technology hasn't really improved. There's not like a big surge of consumer interest in it. If anything, at least in the US, it seems like interest is much lower, but the numbers are all going up again. Well, there is one real very powerful use of cryptocurrencies, and that is criminal enterprise, right? So there always will be a demand for ways to move money around that can avoid the authorities, right? And so this is a, I don't want to say legitimate because it's not legal, but this is a, a legitimate use for this technology. And a, a lot of the research you did took you down some pretty dark paths, right? Involving criminal enterprise. In particular, you were focused on these, I guess they're honeypots or Pig slaughtering, right? That term, I'd seen that term before, yeah. Now, I was thinking that the major use case was repatriating money from different drug endeavors or trying to avoid capital constraints or ransomware. But you went into something which is much darker and much more violent. Did you ever think that was where you were going to ultimately wind up when you launched this investigation? No, I mean, when I started looking into crypto, I had, I think... This scam kind of developed and spread outside China during the time I was in this crypto world. It's a, it's a pretty new one. And if you're not familiar, it's this is the scam that people are trying to suck you into when they send you these spam text messages that we all get. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody gets probably 10 of these. I get like 10 of these a day, right? And it's not just text messages. I mean, even on social media, you get these fake profiles. In fact, my LinkedIn profile was hacked uh, a couple months ago, and it was a, a young, attractive Chinese woman who was the personality, who was apparently an import-export specialist, who just hijacked my entire profile and then started sending out all these connection requests. And I was wondering, why on earth are they doing this? Like, well, why would anybody do that? I don't get it. And then I realized that this was probably an extension of this pig slaughtering. Yeah. and. I mean, what makes crypto so great for these criminals? Because, I mean, these scams are nothing new. And the gist of the scam is that this stranger will say, hey, sorry for the wrong number, but can't we be friends? And they're often, like in your case, they pretend to be an attractive Asian woman or man if they're going after women. Kind of heteronormative scam here. But the scammers will try to be your friend. They'll try to let slip that, they are quite successful and rich and have a lot of 
free time for fun things like golf or driving their Ferrari. And then when you ask, hey, how do you get all that money? They'll say, well, let me show you. I got this great way. Foolproof trading tricks in Bitcoin. And they will ask you, the victim, to sign up for an account at a crypto exchange, buy some crypto, often this stable coin called Tether, that's always where each coin is always worth a dollar. And then they will have you send your cryptocurrency to their crypto wallet. And to send money to a crypto wallet, you just need to know the recipient's 32 character address, which is just a string of random characters. And unlike, so if someone wanted me to send them a wire transfer, they need to give me their name their address. And when I went to go send it at my bank, my bank might say like, are you sure you want to send this? This seems a bit fishy. With crypto, I don't need to know the identity of the recipient. And I can send money across borders instantly and in large amounts and with no recourse, no refunds. And as it turns out, as I learned in the book, the people sending these spam messages are often in Southeast Asia, and there are criminal gangs there, often run by Chinese people, and they have set up these whole like office towers, office parks for scamming. And the low-level workers, the ones who send the texts, often they've been tricked too. They've been recruited with promises. They're basically slaves, right? Yeah, like they're recruited with it. They'll see an ad that says, hey, you want to come to Cambodia for a great job in customer service? And when they get there, they are trapped and they're told, no, actually, you're going to be scamming people and you can't leave. And if you don't hit your quota, we might beat you or torture you or even worse. And it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but I went to visit some of these places. I've seen ones where thousands of people are held doing this work. And the UN actually recently estimated that more than 200,000 people in Southeast Asia have been trafficked to these scam compounds. And I make the argument that, so these scam compounds are generating billions of dollars. And I don't think that this kind of scamming on this scale across borders would be possible without cryptocurrency facilitating the payments. And for a criminal, for someone who's really motivated, crypto is great and they're willing, the scammers will teach you how to use crypto just so that they can have you send money that way so they can scam you. But for a regular person trying to complete a normal transaction, the existing methods are much more convenient. I mean, in the book, I did a lot of travel around the world researching the book, I went to like, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 countries. I always brought my Visa card and nearly everywhere I went had tap and go payments. And they're instant. There was, there's no foreign transaction fee. And I even earned airline points. So the pitch for crypto that it's going to help people make these uh, payments easier, I found again and again, it's actually much harder to use crypto. But if you have a real interest in concealing what you're doing, making big international transfers that people might complain about later, 
then maybe crypto is, is good for you. Yeah, it's puzzling, right? That people say that crypto is frictionless. <laughs> it's incredibly frictionful. But the other thing is that the people who are part of the crypto community, they are known for being very distrusting, right? They don't trust the government. They don't trust financial institutions. They are trying to build sort of some trustless architecture. But what strikes me is how trusting they are, like how gullible they are, how willing to put their life savings at risk with wallets or exchanges that they know very little about. They don't seem to be terribly concerned with hacking. They, they don't seem to be terribly concerned with runs on the institutions. So, I mean, you spend a lot of time with the crypto folks. Are they fundamentally distrustful people or are they just incredibly gullible? Or is it that their gullibility and distrust is highly selective? That's a good point. And yes, I mean, there's two ways that they show a lot of trust. And one is that because of how hard it is to actually do crypto, nearly everybody just ends up trading crypto on exchanges, where which work just like E-Trade or DraftKings or any sort of like online trading site. So basically, what it boils down to is you end up sending your money to some company run by, say, Sam Bankman-Fried, and he's sitting on it. You do your trading on his website, and you hope you make money, and you hope when you go withdraw it, it's still there. So like yeah, that's showing a lot of trust in whoever runs the trading site. In the last couple of years, that trust has been shown to be often totally misplaced. And then when it comes to DeFi, to these sites that are supposedly trustless, where there's supposed to be no central intermediary, unless you are very smart at coding and have a lot of time to review exactly how this works, you're still trusting whoever it is that set up this site, that they set it up right, that they don't have some back door where they can steal the money, that they're secure from hackers, like you said. And like in so many cases, it's been proven that there's flaws in the system and that you are placing a lot of trust in, in something, even if it's not JP Morgan or whoever it is that you were really hoping to not trust. And I would argue if you are making a crypto investment that have, and your money is on some DeFi exchange or some centralized exchange that seems pretty good, I mean, what kind of yield would you want just to sort of let them hold your money? Like I would, it'd have to be a pretty high yield investment just to get over the risk that something unforeseen will happen, right? There's some chance that even if it seems great, that something you didn't think of is wrong with this because it keeps happening again and again in crypto. And I think what makes these people overcome, they're not dumb. They know that these risks are there, the crypto investors, but they think, okay, maybe there's a 10% chance that something goes wrong here. Well, I'm hoping, I'm thinking I might triple my money in a few months. So it's worth overcoming the friction and the risk of hacks and the risk of the boy genius who runs your exchange. Turns out he's stealing all your money out the back of the exchange. That's what makes people overcome everything is this desire to get rich quick in this sense that it's possible because I've seen a lot of other people do it and get rich. Well, I mean, we all know that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? So what I found particularly bizarre is that when DeFi was at its peak and you saw a lot of yield farming and you saw enterprises like Celsius offering these astronomical interest rates or the Luna project, I, I have trouble understanding how reasonably intelligent people could 
put their money into these projects without thinking it to be a Ponzi scheme. I mean, if Silicon Valley Bank came along and offered you 18% interest on your deposits, you'd wonder, well, wait a second, like how can they possibly give me 18%? So if you, okay, I think with Celsius, so Celsius, for example, if you're not familiar, they were a quasi-bank run by this charismatic and very untrustworthy-seeming pitchman, Alex Mashinsky. Their slogan was, unbank yourself. And if you sent Celsius your crypto, they would pay yields from like 5 to 18%. So Celsius's argument, if it made any sense, and this argument was not true, but that it was at least mildly plausible, was that the crypto industry was capital constrained and there were funds that were doing low risk arbitrage, but were willing to borrow at relatively high rates just because they couldn't find other places to borrow. And that Celsius would make loans to these funds at high rates and then pass those earnings on to you, the depositor. And that they had other profitable opportunities that just were being ignored by the mainstream. And as it turned out, I mean, what really happened when all of this crypto boom came unraveled, one of the big catalysts for that was there was a, the best regarded hedge fund was called Three Arrows Capital. And this was the kind of fund that Celsius was lending to. And they, it's found, or yeah, it's founder Sue Zhu. He had tons of followers. People really looked for him, to him for investing advice. And it turned out that this fund had just been borrowing from anyone who, it was true, the fund was borrowing money from Celsius and other people li like it and paying relatively high interest rates, but it was just dumping all the money into crypto and hoping that the numbers would go up and up and up. And when that plan faltered, the fund defaulted on all these loans and Celsius and other companies like it in turn failed. So yeah, I spent like a, more than a year having all these conversations with people about just this, where I would say, yeah, isn't this a little too good to be true? And they'd come up with these long stories about how they might be making these high returns without taking on excessive risk. And yeah, then they were all pretty much shown to be lies. Yeah. I mean, look, we in finance make a distinction between hedging and directional bets, right? And arbitrage and directional bets. And a lot of these funds like Alameda Research, I mean, they did start off as companies engaging in arbitrage. But I mean, the, the arbitrage opportunities were relatively limited and went away very quickly. And so they transitioned into making uh, directional bets. And, and I think finance people are very aware of the difference. Do you think that maybe part of the problem was that a lot of the people in this sector did not have traditional finance backgrounds? I mean, th there were obviously smart people and not so smart people, but even the smart people, the ones with the background in, in engineering, I found that very few of them had exposure to basic finance principles. I mean, there was certainly an element of that where crypto people were rediscovering some of the problems with the traditional financial system that had been known for like decades. And they're running through all of the disasters that have hit the financial industry in like the last century. But one of, I mean, the, the guy who ran Alameda Research, Sam Bankman-Fried, actually did have 
some experience in traditional finance. He came out of Jane Street Capital, which is a really well-regarded trading firm on Wall Street, staffed with physics majors from MIT. And the story that he told me when we met was that at Jane Street, they develop systems to, I mean, Jane Street handles something like, if you trade a stock in the US, maybe it's one in 20 that Jane Street takes the other side of the trade. They take handle a huge percentage of stock trading in the US. And stock trading in the US is super efficient. For all the crypto people like to talk about flaws with the traditional system, I mean, the spreads on stock trades are really, really small now. And Jane Street's developed these complicated systems to turn those tiny spreads into like billions of dollars a year in profit. And Sam's pitch was, we can apply that same sort of thinking to crypto, which is less competitive, where the spreads are 100 times wider, and we can really clean up. And even though he knew exactly what he was doing, he ended up abandoning that, if that was ever their real business plan, and making huge directional bets, including on Dogecoin, based on when Elon Musk might tweet about it. And not just making huge directional bets, making them with money stolen from the customers of his exchange, which is clearly a whole order of magnitude riskier than just gambling on Dogecoin. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, my window into this world is primarily through some very intelligent people who are engineers and entrepreneurs. But I I think when you go to these kind of conferences and you start exposing yourself to the community, I mean, the bulk of this community and even the bulk of the kind of entrepreneurs in this space, they don't seem to be what you might think of as terribly sophisticated people. I mean, some of them were child actors, (laughs) former plastic surgeons. I mean, it's a bizarre collection of people, many of whom had dubious histories, right? So maybe start off by talking about how you decided on Tether as a potential target of your investigation. So in my career, I've always investigated scams. I've done really fun stories about penny stocks, about loan sharks, about payday lending. And I love like unpacking all the details of how a scam works. And to be fair, those scams that you just mentioned, I mean, those are the kind of scams that will rob ordinary people of their life savings. When we think about the victims of, say, Bernie Madoff, I mean, yes, they're sympathetic, but they're generally not like some of the people that you depict, right? People in the Philippines, for instance, who are poor people. I mean, there were retail victims and there were wholesale victims, right? Yeah. And so I think maybe when I was looking at crypto, I was not as attracted to it because I thought, A lot of crypto is just some guy saying, hey, my coin is great. And then a bunch of people who might not even really believe that buying the coin and telling everyone how cool it is and then just hoping it goes up and that they will be able to cash out. And I felt like it was not like a good target for my methods of investigating. But when I came across Tether, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber, came by my desk and just said, hey, what do you think about these stable coins? And when I looked at Tether, it was 2021. This is a company that, so each Tether is supposed to be worth a dollar. It's a simple business model. You give Tether a dollar. They give you a Tether token that you can go trade in crypto land, use it to move your money around. And they take your dollar, Tether does, and puts it 
in the bank somewhere. And if you ever want, you're supposed to be able to send your Tether token back in and get your dollar back. And when I started looking into it, Tether, there were so- I, I love this business model. I wish I had a business like this. I mean, it is even better than the old 363 model that the commercial bankers had here in the US. It's amazing. It's, it's great. Right. Well, now it's looking, because Tether pays no interest. So now it's looking like a great business model because Tether, when I looked into it at first, Tether had issued 50 billion tokens and that meant they were supposed to have $50 billion in the bank somewhere. And when you went and Googled Tether... Back then, the bank paid zero interest, right? So it was not quite as good a business model at that time. And when you, when you looked up Tether online, what you saw was wouldn't have passed like the most basic test in the traditional finance world. The CEO was never at any... Com never had never given an interview or given a speech. He'd been seen so little that some people speculated he did not, in fact, exist. It was hard to say where Tether was. They had said in some context that they were registered in the British Virgin Islands. But when I asked the island's financial regulator if they oversaw Tether, the, the guy was like, no. And when you looked at how Tether was created, it appeared to be the brainchild of Brock Pierce, a former child actor who you can see in the Disney movie, The Mighty Ducks. He's not one of the main Mighty Ducks. He plays the coach in the flashback at the beginning. He misses a penalty shot that haunts Gordon Bombay throughout his life. And Brock Pierce, he'd made a lot of money on virtual items in massively multiplayer online role-playing games like World of Warcraft or EverQuest, and he'd become this crypto venture capitalist. And it appeared he'd been key to starting this company, Tether. So I eventually caught up with him on his yacht off the coast of Nassau in the Bahamas, where I had a very funny conversation with him. He was wearing a knee-length vest, shirtless, beautiful fedora with, like I think, playing cards in the brim and was just waxing philosophical about how crypto was going to save the world and Tether was key to national security. Anyway, I looked at Tether and I'm like, if this company existed in the traditional financial world, people would be screaming about how sketchy it was. And in crypto, it wasn't like people in crypto denied that Tether was odd, but they just used it anyway. And it was the number one on most days it was the number one most traded coin and it undergirded like a big volume of all crypto trading. And when you'd ask people in crypto, well, how solid is this Tether thing anyway? Oh, I mean, I'm forgetting the key. They would not say where the $50 billion was. They were like, we definitely have it, but we're not saying where it is. So I thought, okay, I think this is something I could handle. I'm going to go try and figure out what's up with this $50 billion. Maybe I can find it. Maybe I can get some clues about whether it's all there. It's like, this is my kind of mystery. And so that's what sucked me in to the crypto world. Yeah, the mystery is, if they have it, why wouldn't they tell the world, right? Why wouldn't, you'd think they would be calling it every auditor on the planet to come in and disclose because that would boost their business. I mean, it, or is it that they didn't need to? Like there was no, they, if they had done that, maybe it wouldn't have 
done anything because people already trusted them. There could be some part of that, but I also had a very funny conversation about this with Tether's CEO. It turned out he did exist. His name Jean-Louis Vanderveld. And I had just spent some time with Sam Bankman-Fried in the Bahamas. And then I was sitting down with Vanderveld and I asked him that question. And I said, wouldn't it be great to, in hindsight, this was a very hilarious thing for me to say. I said, wouldn't it be great to set all these fears to rest? I mean, I just spent three days with Sam Bankman-Fried. He clearly is not up to no good. He showed me everything on his computer. He let me just sit there while he did his business. There's a man who's got nothing to hide, Sam Bankman-Fried. And Jean-Louis Vanderveld said, yes, I agree that Sam Bankman-Fried has nothing to hide. It must be easy for him. He only just got into this business recently. And so he hasn't undergone the hardships that we had. He's able to just show his books all clean. And there was this implication that Tether, and I mean, it's a fact, in the early days, crypto was in this real gray area. And Tether did some shady stuff in order to get access to the traditional financial system. So it seemed like what the CEO was saying was, even if we have the money now, we can't really permit a thorough examination of everything we've done to get to this point. And so maybe that is still what's stopping Tether from providing even more info. And it, it, a part of it may also be that Tether's business partners might be happy to take their money to earn fees from servicing Tether, but they might not want the entire world to know about it. So that might be why Tether is not like saying exactly who they're doing business with. Although recently, Cantor Fitzgerald, the Wall Street trading firm, came out and its CEO, Howard Lutnick, said, yes, we hold Tether's treasury bonds. I don't know if he said all of them or a bunch. And he said, we love it. Great customer. So maybe the Tether will disclose more in the coming months. Yeah, I mean, it's one question I would have is, why aren't mainstream financial institutions getting into the business that Tether is in. Now, of course, one reason why is that they don't want to be involved in the illicit uses that Tether is put to. But there are plenty of people that are using it for perfectly legitimate reasons. I mean, speculating in crypto and so forth. So I wonder why the, you'd think that if JP Morgan offered up a stable coin, that it would be more attractive to most people who weren't criminals. So, yeah, I mean, the appeal for anyone right now is that interest rates have risen and Tether now is sitting on more like $80 billion and they don't pay the interest to Tether token holders. So Tether now, I went into it thinking that Tether was the sketchiest company in crypto. And now, years later, so many of the people that I met, their companies have failed. Tether has held up. They've now got $80 billion. And if you believe their numbers, they're earning, say, 5%, a safe 5% yield on that $80 billion, And that would be $4 billion a year in profit. It's a really small operation. So the company... I mean, the owner must be uh, among the wealthiest people on earth. I mean, there's some pretty wealthy people out there, but... He's definitely a billionaire, and Tether is more profitable than Nike. 
this like crypto company that's still kind of unknown to most people is just making tons of money. So of course, yes, why wouldn't Wall Street get involved? And people definitely are. Like a lot of people in the crypto world are trying to start their own stable coins because they can see that this is easy money for Tether. And it's kind of weird. There's another stable coin called USDC that's run by Circle, which is like an American company. There's more information available about their holdings. It doesn't have the same track record of sketchiness. There's more reason to, it certainly seems more trustworthy, but Circle does not, USDC is still not nearly as as popular as Tether. And it's honestly, it's kind of hard to say why. I think a lot of it is just that you want to use the same currency as everyone else. And in certain parts of the world, Tether has become like the standard. And if you used a different coin, the people that you transact with wouldn't like it. And so I think if JP Morgan started JP Morgan coin, starting from scratch, you'd have an even bigger problem of just who else wants to use this coin. And stable coins have this kind of, they are treated differently than other kind of money transmission businesses. And I don't know if that's going to be true for the long haul, if regulators will stick with this. But basically, like if, I mean, I can open a PayPal account and I send money to PayPal. And now I have sort of like PayPal dollars that I can zap to your PayPal account. And I mean, that's not so different from a stable coin. However, PayPal wants to know who I am. They follow all the banking rules and regulations about knowing your customer. They want to know who you are. You can't hold PayPal dollars without disclosing your identity. However, if I have a crypto wallet on my phone, like MetaMask or any of the tons of other options, I can hold tethers on my phone and send them to your phone without disclosing any identifying information. And it seems like it's like, it's a very similar transaction that's treated very differently by regulators right now. And I just, I wonder if that will continue, especially if stable coins keep growing. A lot of people think that their activity on blockchain can't be tracked, but you dig into one investigation and how they were able to track down the crypto that was stolen from Bitfinex. And these were some kind of interesting characters. You, you've got this YouTube rapper and her husband, and they had, I think, at was it $4.5 billion worth of crypto that they were just sitting on? Yeah, it might have topped $5 billion at the peak, but they've now pleaded guilty uh, and are awaiting sentencing, I believe. And so their young couple lived in New York's financial district, and they Bitfinex is an exchange owned by the Tether people. It's a similar, same ownership. Razzlecon is, was the hacker's rap name. She had this alternate persona where she did really horrible, but very well-produced rap videos that she'd put on YouTube. Her and her husband, Ilya Lichtenstein, had hacked Bitfinex through... Essentially, they gained access to Bitfinex's computer system, likely through some sort of phishing scheme, like getting an employee to click a link. And then once they were inside the exchange's computer, they had sent all the exchanges or half the exchange's Bitcoins to wallets they controlled. And so at the time of the hack, the Bitcoins were worth maybe, I think it was 100 million or something like that. 
But as they sat on them, the value went up and up and up to the point where by the time they were caught, this young couple had like billions of dollars of Bitcoins. And I think there's... And they'd only spent a tiny fraction of it, right? Yes, very, very small amount. And so this is where I think a perception has sprung up that crypto is kind of bad for crime because it is trackable, especially in these high profile cases where there's a lot of interest. So people could see that the hackers had transferred the Bitcoins to these addresses and no one knows who those addresses belong to, but anyone can go look up those addresses, see how many Bitcoins are in them and see if they make any transfers to other addresses. It makes it very hard to spend the money. Like imagine somebody robbed a bank and they had all the duffel bags of money and they stuck them in the getaway car outside and then they just sort of locked the door and, and walked away. And so anybody could see like, there's the bank's money, it's right in the getaway car, but nobody can get in. So as you can imagine... Well, it's almost like there's an ink canister, right, that explodes and all the money has pink stains on it, right? So everybody knows that it's stolen. So those Bitcoins, anyone who transacts with those wallets gets marked as a criminal who's done business with the hacker. And what they had to do was find people who didn't really care so that they could... You, It's like other forms of money laundering where they had to transact with like drug dealers and then they had money that was just that was slightly less tainted it just appeared to come from like drug dealers and then they had to find someone who didn't mind handling the drug dealer money in the end they really weren't able to spend much of it before they were caught but compare this to like a typical criminal like let's say i wanted to evade taxes i would just need to find a way to acquire crypto without giving identifying information, then I would hold this crypto in my crypto wallet, which isn't identified by name. And then the only way that the authorities would be get onto me is if they would never be able to associate my wallet with me unless they got some sort of like external clue. So like the typical criminal, crypto is still pretty good. It's like Swiss bank accounts were great for criminals, even though they were identified by number. But yes, the blockchain, there are these like blockchain detectives. And if they set their mind to it, they can gather a lot of clues eventually about these big crypto crimes. Now, you've traveled to a bunch of places. One of the places you went to is El Salvador. And I followed somewhat closely the experiment that they were running down there. It seemed very, very bizarre. I mean, the people on the outside thought, wow, isn't this great? And the people on the ground (laughs) were befuddled by it, right? Yes. I mean... Count me among the befuddled, especially at first. I was there, it was at my first crypto conference, Bitcoin Miami 2021, that this experiment was announced. And there was this crypto bro on stage, and he's telling this story about like going surfing in El Salvador and he's cursing and he's wearing a hoodie. And then suddenly a video appears of the president of El Salvador and he's saying, like, hello, Bitcoin conference. I have decided that my country will now make Bitcoin legal tender. And then the crypto bro giving the presentation was so excited that he started crying. He's talking about how this is going to end poverty in El Salvador and how it's going to spread to other countries. And I'm like, what is this nonsense? And I look around and like the audience is wrapped. Other people are crying. Like this is just like a huge moment for Bitcoin. 
And I went down to Elsa. There's a certain messianic flavor to it, isn't it? Yes. There's this belief that like Bitcoin, I mean, it's become sort of a joke where people say like Bitcoin fixes this to everything, but the Bitcoin people really believe that they just love Bitcoin and they think that it's the cure for all the world's ills. And it's the same kind of stuff that gold bugs think, but it's just been transferred to this new hard currency. But yeah, this El Salvador, it was a good experiment because population was very strongly encouraged to use Bitcoin. Everyone in the country was given, if you downloaded the national Bitcoin app, they'd give you 30 bucks worth of Bitcoin, which goes a long way there. So a lot of people did download the app and a lot of them, most of them just cashed in their 30 bucks and called it a day. And so by the time I got there, it was very hard to find. It was almost impossible to investigate like Bitcoin in El Salvador because there was just nothing happening. Like people had no opinion about it. They'd just say like, whatever, like I got my 30 bucks and you'd go to restaurants and they were supposed very strongly encouraged by law to accept Bitcoin. But they'd often say, oh, the machine's broken. The manager, we got to talk to the manager, but he's on break. Because it's such a hassle. They'd come up with all these excuses to try to not take your Bitcoin payment. And I, I couldn't, I was surprised to see that in, I went to this town called El Zante, the surf town that has become like a pilgrimage destination for Bitcoiners. And it was, it was there that the El Salvador Bitcoin experiment started. But even there, the locals are just sick of the Bitcoin tourists. And so I saw stores that had signs that said, we don't accept Bitcoin. And there's really no reason not, you're just turning away perfectly good Bitcoin tourists. I mean, Bitcoin's kind of annoying, but if you could sell a dinner to a German Bitcoiner for Bitcoin, the hassle is so great that they're just willing to turn business away rather than use the Bitcoin app. It was... Yeah, it was pretty surprising. Also, the government went to great lengths to encourage people to use this app for remittances, but it's only gained a really tiny market share, like a percentage point or two. So it, it seemed to me like this is a really big test of like Bitcoin's appeal as a payments mechanism, and it totally failed. Now, one reason may be that El Salvador is already dollarized, and so the people already have access to like a very a relatively stable currency. And so the appeal of using something that goes up and down a lot just might not be there. Maybe if they try it in Argentina, have better luck. Well, your travels took you also to the Bahamas where you spent time with Sam Bankman-Fried both before and after the, the collapse. And one of the possibilities that you raise is that Bankman-Fried knew he was participating in a Ponzi scheme all along, but he had a good justification for it, which was the effect of altruism. I mean, we've seen the trial. We still don't have a better grasp on what he knew and what he didn't know. I mean, does it matter? I mean, what do you think? Because this is like a physics major, right? This is a smart guy. It would be very difficult to believe that he just kind of lost track of a few billion here and a few billion there. I mean, is that possible? So when, after FTX failed, I flew down there and I told Sam, we got to talk. I got to find out because I had written a pretty positive story about him earlier in the year. And I was really focused on, I was really taken by this idea of 
effective altruism and whether this kid had really, as a teen, the, the way he tells the story is that when he was a teenager, he met this philosopher. The philosopher was like, wouldn't it be pretty cool if you got rich and gave all the money away? And teenage Sam was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And then by the time I met him, which was only like nine years later, he was one of the richest people in the world. So I was really hung up on like, will he actually give all his money away? Is this a... Uh, and look, I mean, it, and there is a certain logic to it, right? I mean, even if you were stealing the money, you could make a pretty good utilitarian case for taking money from crypto bros and, and giving it to you know, people who have malaria, right? I mean, you could tell a good story there if that were the case. Yes. And so like what I thought was that he was running this crypto exchange that was where people would trade all these coins, most of which were pretty stupid and would probably, some of them scams, that a lot of the traders would lose their money, but that he would just earn a steady stream of fees from these trades and that he was running like an honest exchange and that it was like a very mild Robin Hood scenario where he is like running this gambling establishment and giving it to worthy causes. But as it turned out... So it's honest like Purdue Pharma is honest, right? They're just giving people what they want, right? As long as you donate the money to the museums, you're right. then you're a good person. But as it turned out, they were stealing all the money that people sent to their crypto casino and taking it to other crypto casinos and gambling it. And so when I sat down with him after the failure, he ran through all his excuses and he tried to claim it was just sloppiness. At one point we had this crazy exchange where I, he gave, he went on and on and I was like thinking about what he said. I'm like, are you really saying that you misplaced $8 billion? And he said, misaccounted with like this kind of smile, like that was a great explanation that was really going to play well. But what he did say to me during that conversation, so he had Alameda, his hedge fund, and then he had FTX, the exchange. And at the center of the fraud was that Alameda did not follow the same rules as other traders on the exchange. Everybody on the exchange could take out loans, but Alameda was the only one that could take out unlimited loans. And so when I was talking with Sam, I said, did Alameda really follow all the same rules as everyone else? Like, I don't think what happened would be possible unless Alameda was able to break the rules. And he said to me, there was more leeway. And at the trial, this came up. And he testified in his own defense. And he gave a lot of the same excuses that I had heard when I was in the Bahamas. But then he was cross-examined and the prosecutor asked him, you know, you're saying that all traders on the exchange could borrow, but have you ever said that Alameda didn't follow the same rules as everyone else? And Sam said, you know, I don't remember anything like that. And she pulled out a hard copy of Number Go Up, gave it to him and said like, Turn to page 224. And after some objections and a conference with the judge, they went over all the stuff that he'd said to me. And he had to claim that he didn't remember saying that, that he didn't think he'd actually really talk to me very much. We'd spent all day together. And his 
media spree after the collapse, which I've been a part of, really came back to bite him at this trial where they could pick apart everything that he said and find inconsistencies with it. But one thing that also came out at the trial was that, not that this is, I think, an excuse for his fraud, but that this was a guy who really thought he was going to save the world and who I think if you could have an honest conversation with him, I think he would say a version of what you said, where it's like, what our goals are, the ends justify the means. We are going to do so much good with this money. It's worth it to gamble the customer's money because if it works, we're going to save so many lives. And I will say that, you know, if in a couple of years, chat, one of his causes was AI research. He was going to give lots of this money to research AI safety. And if in a couple of years we're facing a Terminator scenario and we don't have good defenses against it, we might say, wouldn't it have been nice if we had let Sam Bankman frieds fraud go on a little bit longer? Maybe he would have <laughs> invented the, the good robots that could save us by now. <laughs> well, you know, last question. As an investigative reporter, you have a lot of different methods that you use. But, you know, there are also some unusual things that you did, which made you a participant and not just an observer. You bought an NFT so that you could go to the NFT convention. You actually sent some money to one of these pig slaughterers to see what would happen. Do you think that, is there a boundary that you crossed there? How conventional is it for someone in your position to participate? Is there a danger that, I mean, you would start to uh, identify more with the people you're investigating? Is that a danger or is that actually, is that a feature? I mean, in my day-to-day job, we don't make investments in companies or cryptocurrencies that we cover because of that danger. We are worried that if I had a lot of stock in Uber, that might make me hesitant to write a negative story about them, or maybe I'd want to write nice stories about them to try and pump the stock. In this case, so I bought this mutant ape NFT in order to attend a week-long ape fest featuring Snoop Dogg and Eminem, and it was not permitted to enter ape fest unless you were uh, an ape holder. So I might compare this to buying a very expensive ticket to a conference. In this case, like the ticket cost $20,000. Wait, if you'd gone to your bosses at Bloomberg and (laughs) asked for reimbursement, (laughs) I'm guessing they would have said no. There would have had to be like way too many meetings about this never, by the time the meetings were finished, ApeFest would have come and gone. So like, even though I think the ethics of it are fine and they might have eventually gotten on board. I think it would have been very difficult to convince them to let me expense a $20,000 NFT. And luckily with the book, I had an advance and I did have that money. And my wife, Nicole, was cool with it and realized that this was crucial for the book that I buy Dr. Scum, my mutant ape, And that, you know, the readers of the book, they'd want to see what really happened inside Ape Fest, that I'd I'd be cheating them if I didn't, if I didn't go check it out. But, and I actually found it, the process, the crypto guys would say, if you don't participate in crypto, that is a form of bias. 
you are totally locked up in the old system and you are not giving crypto a chance. And I thought, you know what? I do want to give it a try. And I did find it very educational. Like I thought I kind of knew how crypto worked, but the process of, in order to buy an NFT, like this ugly cartoon of an ape, you need to leave the easy to use safe confines of like Coinbase or Robinhood or these consumer facing apps. And you have to use a real DeFi wallet such as MetaMask. And I learned what I just said that sounds very official and sounds, you know, very high tech. And what I learned was that effectively what it was is that I would be transferring my money to a browser extension that I can still see it here in my web browser. It lives right next to the ad block extension. It's a little picture of a fox head and that my $20,000 would live inside the fox head and that, you know, if I clicked the wrong button or I don't like if I updated my browser, like would my $20,000 disappear? Like probably not. I know that's not how it works, but there's a chance. There's a, um, so I found it, uh, uh, it doesn't disappear if you update your browser, but I found the whole thing like terrifying. I was just like, bring me back to my bank with a customer service line and someone to call if I have a fraudulent charge. And because I did not think I was about to get rich quick, I just found all the friction involved to be very annoying and scary. And for the few days that I held my NFT, I just like would wake up each morning and think, oh God, is this going to be the day that I lose $20,000? Like, please don't let that happen. And I was always tempted to check NFT prices, but I'd also been warned that if I clicked on some sort of hacked link, my wallet could easily be drained. So I had to weigh my compulsion to check the price with the risk that I took each time I checked the price that I click some sort of silly link and lose my ape. And the whole process was just so much worse than I expected even though my expectations were pretty low. And so I, I did feel like I learned a lot from that moment of participation in the crypto world. Well, you know, they say journalism is an early draft of history. And so I think the historians are going to look back on this moment and they'll be looking for some source material. And I think number go up will be definitely part of that source material. So thanks so much, Zeke, for joining me. It is called Number Go Up. Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. It's a thriller. It's a great book of uh, journalism and economic history. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. 